Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by and welcome to the Intact Financial Corporation Q1 2020 Results Conference Call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. If you require any further assistance, please press star 0. Please be advised that today's conference is being recorded. I would now like to hand the conference over to your speaker today, Ken Anderson, Senior Vice President, Investor Relations and Corporate Development. Thank you. Please go ahead. Thank you, Cheryl. Good morning, everyone. I hope you're all safe and well. Thank you for joining the call today. A link to our live webcast and published information for this call is posted on our website at intactfc.com under the Investors tab. As usual, before we start, please refer to slide two for cautionary language regarding the use of forward-looking statements, which form part of this morning's remarks, and slide three for a note on the use of non-IFRS financial measures and important notes on adjustments, terms, and definitions used in this presentation. Our executives are joining virtually today from across the country. Firstly, in Toronto, we have our CEO, Charles Brindamore. With me here in Montreal are Louis Marcotte, CFO, Isabel Girard, SVP of Personal Lines, and Patrick Barbeau, SVP of Claims. And from Calgary, we're joined by Darren Godfrey, SVP of Commercial Lines. We'll begin with prepared remarks, followed by the Q&A. With that, I'll turn the call to our CEO, Charles Brindamore. Thanks, Ken. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. Since the last weeks of March, the world has changed dramatically. The coronavirus pandemic has inflicted immense pain and suffering on communities across the globe, and economic activity has slowed to levels not seen in our lifetime. We're grateful for the dedication and commitment of healthcare workers and essential services. They've rallied to society's aid, while people and communities have endured a lockdown never before seen. Across North America, society's discipline is paying off, as we're thankfully witnessing a slowing of the spread of COVID-19. At Impact, our business is resilient, and our number one priority is ensuring we support society and our customers through this. Over the past six weeks, we've been helping impacted customers by providing payment flexibility and premium adjustments to recognize financial hardship and changing risk profile. Our measures are aimed at providing the highest amount of benefit to those who need it the most. So far into Q2, we've provided over 130 million of relief to approximately 390,000 customers. And we expect the total amount of relief will exceed 200 million by the end of the lockdown. Our business was built to support people businesses and society in both good times and bad times, and that's exactly what we're doing. Our ability to support our customers and brokers is the direct result of our people, 
of which over 99% of them are working effectively from home. Supporting them is our robust IT infrastructure, which is performing really well. We're set up to operate our business remotely for an extended period of time, if necessary. And at Intact, the trains are running on time. I do believe it's now important, though, for businesses and government to work together to develop a plan for a gradual risk-based return to work in the coming weeks. Now, let me provide a bit of color on our quarterly results. So yesterday evening, we announced solid first quarter net operating income of $1.61 per share. Top-line growth was 14% in the quarter, including the GCNA acquisition. In Canada, premiums grew 15%, and in the U.S., growth was 9%. The combined ratio was 94.3%. Canada posted a solid 93.3, with mild winter weather more than offsetting the COVID-19-related losses. The U.S. commercial lines combined ratio was 100.1%, including 8.5 points of COVID-19 claims provisions. In aggregate, we recorded a provision of $83 million directly related to COVID-19 claims in commercial lines, both in Canada and in the U.S. We did a bottom-up analysis of where our exposure uh, could be to determine the direct impact of COVID-19 and commercial lines. And of course, we'll refine it in the second quarter as the situation develops. But we're confident with the position we've taken so far. We're also, of course, remaining vigilant on the potential indirect effect of the slowing economy over the coming year. The prevailing hard market conditions in Canada we experienced in 2019 and in early 2020 will be temporarily impacted by the crisis as we provide relief to small and mid-sized businesses that are going through a hard time. Once the impact of the crisis has passed, we do expect corrective measures to resume fully as the industry continues to report ROEs well below historical averages. In 2019, the industry ROE was 5.6%, which put our outperformance at 580 basis points for the full year, again above our 500 basis point objective. In the U.S., while industry premium growth will be impacted by the economic slowdown, we expect the prevailing hardening market conditions, including rate increases, to continue. Let's now look at our first quarter results by line of business, starting with Canada. In personal auto, premiums grew 11%, driven by favorable market conditions and including the GCNA acquisition. The combined ratio of 94.6% improved by 7.3 points, driven by lower frequency of claims, in large part driven by our action plan over the last few years, as well as benign weather in the first quarter this year. The crisis did not have a material impact on Q1 results in automobile insurance. And overall, our emphasis remains on portfolio quality as we focus on maintaining overall profitability levels 
in 2020. In personal property, premiums grew 12% driven by favorable market condition, the GCNA acquisition, and unit growth. The combined ratio at 81.8% was the strongest in over a decade, driven by our actions over time and a mild winter. The crisis did not have an impact during the quarter and is not expected to have a meaningful impact in 2020. Personal property remains well positioned to operate sub-95, even with severe weather. In commercial lines, premium growth of 22% reflects the GCNA acquisition, as well as strong market conditions. The combined ratio of 100.7% included 6.6 points, or $50 million of direct COVID-19 related losses. Overall, the underlying fundamentals in commercial are strong, and we're maintaining our focus on underwriting quality. This business is positioned for low 90s performance over time. Moving to our U.S. commercial segments, premiums grew 9%, including the GCN acquisition. The combined ratio at 100.1% included 8.5 points of direct COVID-19 related loss provision. While the crisis may add some near-term volatility, the fundamentals of this segment are trending well towards our goal of sustainable low 90s performance. Looking at our IFC underwriting operation for the rest of 2020, one could expect to see a mid-single digit to low double-digit impact to top-line growth from COVID-19, depending on the severity and duration of the crisis. With the prudent provision we recorded in Q1, we expect the overall direct impact of the crisis on underwriting income for the rest of the year to be largely neutral. But given this unprecedented crisis is ongoing, it's of course difficult to be definitive on the indirect impact of the economic slowdown in future periods. And uh, as there is a fair amount of uncertainty as to how the crisis will evolve, performance by quarter in line of business may be uneven. Despite the market volatility in March, we ended the quarter with a strong capital position with MCT above 200% and a capital margin at $1.5 billion. Our balance sheet is both capable of absorbing further meaningful headwinds and is also flexible to act on opportunities. While it's always difficult to determine the timing, it's clear to me that market dislocation tends to surface opportunities and we remain watchful. Turning to strategy, while supporting customers through this crisis is our number one priority, we continue to execute on our long-term strategy. First, our people are engaged in responding to customer needs. When the crisis hit, we mobilized at lightning speed. Over 1,000 employees were redeployed across the organization to focus on specific initiatives including the processing of customer relief transaction and supporting our digital tools and other activities. Across the organization, productivity and collaboration remain high and we continue to deliver top-notch service to our customers and brokers. Second, through our digital platform, 
we're ensuring our customers and brokers have ease of access in a world where physical contact is disrupted. Since the crisis began, we've seen, for instance, electronic payments for claims increase from low teens to north of 35%. And the proportion of clients who are submitting claims electronically has more than doubled as well. The usage of our digital tools is a win-win. It drives a better customer experience and improved efficiency for both IFC and our brokers. Lastly, the integration of GCNA and Frank Cowan is on track as we build a leading North American specialty platform. Policy conversions are underway. We launched our high net worth brand, Intact Prestige, in March. GCNA employees are already integrating with their Intact colleagues and living our values. And we're on track to meet our financial objective of mid-single noise secretion, including the on-site acquisition by 2021. In conclusion, our discipline and our work over the past three years meant that we entered 2020 in a very strong position. And our first quarter performance is a good proof point. Our teams have mobilized fast to deal with the COVID-19 crisis and we've provided significant relief to our customers. Our focus is on continuing to provide real help to customers while advancing our strategies and achieving our financial objectives. Our business is tremendously resilient and we're well positioned to demonstrate, demonstrate that again in the months and years ahead. And with that, I'll turn the call over to our CFO, Louis Marcotte. Thanks, Charles, and good morning, everyone. Net operating income per share was $1.61, up from 73 cents last year, driven by strong underwriting performance and distribution results. As good as these results are, let me first summarize the impact of the COVID-19 crisis on our Q1 results. The impact on top line was very limited as the crisis really began at the end of the quarter. The relief, measure, the relief measures have also started after quarter end. We took a provision of $83 million related to COVID-19 losses, which we have reported as CATS. This represents a three-point impact on our IFC combined ratio. Of the 83 million, 50 million resides in Canada and 33 million in the US, both in our commercial lines. These provisions relate to direct losses from event cancellations, tuition reimbursements, liability, and specifically endorsed business interruption in some of our specialized programs. They represent our best estimate of ultimate losses based on a bottom-up assessment of where COVID-19 could trigger a liability, as few claims have been reported to date. Although the crisis is still unfolding, we recognize these direct losses early and prudently. Consequently, for the rest of the year, and based on our knowledge today, we believe our underwriting performance will be largely on track. As we progress through the year, we will continue to monitor the economic impacts of the crisis and the potential for indirect losses. In Canada, excluding 2.1 points of COVID-19 losses, the combined ratio of 91.2% was solid, improving 11.7 points year over year thanks to benign weather, favorable market conditions, and our ongoing profitability actions. In the US, 
excluding eight and a half points of COVID-19 losses, we achieved a 91.6% combined ratio, which reflects solid or improving performances across all lines of business. Net investment income of $150 million was up 7% compared to last year, mainly driven by the impact of higher invested assets following the acquisition of GCNA. We now expect investment income in 2020 to grow between 1% and 3% compared to 2019 as we reflect the impact of lower interest rates and dividend yields. Distribution EBITDA and other income grew 20%, 22% to $44 million in the quarter, driven by the acquisitions of Frank Cowan and Onside. Our growth expectations for distribution earnings for the year are tempered by the uncertainty resulting from the crisis. Depending on the length and severity of the crisis, we believe the growth of these earnings for the full year will be in the upper single-digit to low-double-digit range. I am pleased to see how our business performed in the first quarter, delivering strong operating results despite absorbing the impacts of COVID-19. In particular, I should underline the operating ROE of 14% on the last 12 months basis. Now let me provide some additional color on the underwriting results beginning with Canada. In personal auto, we saw premium growth of 11% with minimal impact from COVID-19 as relief measures have been rolled out after quarter end. As I mentioned earlier, we expect that the premium reductions offered to customers will largely impact top line in Q2 and Q3. Personal auto profitability was strong in the first quarter at 94.6%, with a six-point improvement in the underlying current year loss ratio, driven mainly by our profitability actions as well as better weather conditions. The impact of COVID-19 was minimal in the quarter as the frequency frequency declined observed throughout the quarter accelerated at the very end, making it difficult to distinguish between the impact of action plans, weather, and COVID-19. Prior year development was slightly favorable in the quarter, a sharp reversal from last year, but in line with our expectations. In commercial lines, excluding 6.6 points of COVID-19 losses, the combined ratio of 94.1% improved 12.6 points on a combination of better weather and profitability actions. The Canadian expense ratio of 29.3% for the quarter increased 1.2 points from last year, mainly driven by a business mix and the impact of GCNA. Turning to U.S. commercial, the GCNA acquisition added nine points to our top line in Q1. On a pure organic basis, excluding the impact of exiting healthcare last year and the acquisition of GCNA, growth was 10% thanks to favorable market conditions and new business. The underlying loss ratio of 51.6% in a quarter improved 3.9 points, which was largely driven by the impact of our profitability actions. Favorable prior year reserve development of 2.2% was better than expected, with strength across all ongoing businesses. We continue to expect little impact from PYD in the near term. The U.S. expense ratio of 39% was 1.5 points higher than Q1 last year, mainly due to the addition of GCNA's surety business. The combined ratio in the U.S. of 91.6% ex-COVID-19 related losses was driven by a strong performance in most lines of business. Although the crisis adds a bit of volatility to our results, 
We continue to make steady progress on our profitability improvement plans and target a sustainable combined ratio in the low 90s. Moving to our non-operating results, we recorded an impairment charge of $96 million on our common share portfolio, despite the short time period over which we could observe the price movements. The impairment does not impact book value per share as the investments are marked to market, but it does affect the ROE. The effective income tax rate of 27.9% was above expectations and reflects a one-time retroactive change in U.S. tax legislation. Moving forward, we continue to expect our tax rate to be, 21, to be between 21 and 22%. Now a few words on our balance sheet. Our unrealized gains position, which stood at $360 million at the end of 2019, moved to an, to an unrealized loss position of $554 million at the end of Q1, mainly from common and preferred, shares equi preferred equities. This was partially offset by an improvement in the funding ratio of our pension plans driven by wider spreads, as well as the strengthening of the U.S. dollar. Overall, this led to our book value per share declining by 4% sequentially to $51.71, a good outcome in the circumstances. In the face of highly volatile markets, we acted quickly and prudently to strengthen our capital position, including the issuance of a $300 million medium-term note and unwinding some capital-intensive strategies, such as our market-neutral strategies. As a result of our actions, we ended the quarter in a strong financial position with $1.5 billion of total capital margin. In Canada, our MCT was 202%, and in the U.S., the RBC regulatory capital stood at an estimated 393%, both well above minimum required levels. We have $343 million of cash at the holding company, and over $600 million of our credit facility is undrawn. Our debt-to-total capital ratio was 24.1% at March 31st. However, we are confident we will return to our target of 20% over the next 18 to 24 months. With our resilient operations and strong capital position, we are in a good position to support our customers throughout the, this crisis. We are also in a strong position to pay our dividends, absorb future shocks from capital markets, and capture opportunities as they arise. Before concluding, let me update you on the unrealized loss position in Q2. I'm happy to report that the unrealized loss in AOCI has decreased by approximately $400 million on the back of strong equity markets. But keep in mind that spreads have tightened, and this will impact our pension plan funding and could offset some of these gains. In closing, with a talented team, robust operating platforms, and solid fundamentals, we're well positioned to deliver shareholder value during these unprecedented times. With that, I'll give the call back to Ken. Thank you, Louis. In order to give everyone a chance to participate in the Q&A, we would ask that you kindly limit yourselves to two questions per person. Of course, if there's time at the end, you can certainly requeue for follow-ups. So, Cheryl, we're now ready to take questions. Certainly. To ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. The first question is from Jeff Kwan of RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Hi. Good morning. Um, when I think about, I guess, how you run each of your business lines and, and you try to target um, certain profit levels, but arguably these aren't normal times and, and you've got personal auto that could benefit from lower frequency and commercial 
or maybe there's uh, potentially higher claims exposures. So when you talk about the premium relief efforts that you guys are doing, are you still talking uh, about kind of a silo approach to profitability or, or given the circumstances we are in, is it maybe taking a little bit more from a consolidated approach, albeit on a temporary basis when making those decisions on, on how to allocate the premium relief for your customers? Jeff, that's um, that's a really good question, and 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 I would say that um, you know we uh, we entered 2020 in a position of strength, and uh, that's why we were able to put those measures in place very quickly. Uh, and you know, just to recap, uh, there is financing relief here that is uh, provided uh, across the board, and then you have uh, premium relief that is provided based on change in risk profile, a change in behavior, and where, uh, and where uh, real need uh, exists. Uh, we've tempered uh, some of the uh, increases, uh, again, in the areas where uh, businesses are most impacted by shutdown. But you know, Jeff, this program is very much risk-based, it's flexible, and it's based on individual people's circumstances. And our approach to running the business is to look at each line as they stand and do the right thing for our customers within those lines of business, taking into account um, the, the performance of that line. So I would say, in aggregate, subsidization between line of business is not something that is, um, that is part of how we're thinking here uh, about this, this relief effort. It is really based on need based on risk profile, and based on what we can do as an organization. And sitting here today, you know, I'm, I'm quite pleased that uh, we've helped 390,000 Canadian, and we're probably past 400,000 as we speak because there's a fair bit of, um, of volume. And um, we feel that this is the right thing to do in this environment, but uh, there's no uh, subsidies between lines of business uh, that are explicit or even implicit. Okay, thanks. And just my other question was, um, out of the U.S., we've seen on the auto side some, some data points from Progressive and Geico uh, on whether or not it's claims ratio or, or frequency since COVID-19 started. Uh, can you quantify what the impact so far has been in Q2 to whether or not it's a claims ratio or even if it's just frequency severity uh, for the personal and commercial auto book? Jeff, at high level, um, <clears throat> The impact of the lockdown was most acute towards the end of March, I'd say last week of March and the first few weeks in, uh, in April. Uh, and uh, we have seen from telematics data as well as from frequency data for a few weeks there, we've seen ballpark, you know, a drop uh, in frequency close to uh, 50%. It's been... Uh, in the past couple of weeks, though, we've seen driving started to uh, pick up in the 10 to 20% range uh, from the bottom of the, uh, of the uh, lockdown. And with good weather, we expect that to gradually increase. Um, I think the, the, the other thing that one needs to take into account, though, when you think about that is a couple of things. I think that you can... You, one should not assume that severity doesn't change when frequency drops. Um, there are some severity impacts related to 
you know, uh, the crisis itself, and we remain prudent, in particular in lines of business like accident benefit in Ontario, about the severity impact of, uh, of not only the lockdown, but the economic uh, environment. So all in all, I'd say at the depth of the lockdown, we saw a drop in driving of about 50%. We've seen that uh, uh, we've seen the driving increase in the past two weeks uh, in a, I would say, meaningful way. It's really not back to normal, no doubt about that. Uh, and then we're keeping an eye on, on severity in that process. So that's kind of you know, my take on it. I don't know if Isabel wants to uh, add anything to that or Patrick, who is sitting uh, in, the, uh, in the claims operation, also on the front line, of this. So maybe Isabel, a bit of color, and then uh, Patrick. Yeah, sure. Thanks, uh, Charles. Uh, I would say that uh, uh, in addition of what Charles mentioned during uh, the COVID crisis, I think it's also important to notice that pre-COVID frequency was already decreasing in, in our portfolio. Uh, given our strong action plan that was in place for a few, uh, a lot of months already, as well as favorable weather in the first quarter of 2020. So frequency was already uh, in decrease by about uh, 15% uh, versus uh, prior year average. So I think that's also something that is important to note. Uh, and as uh, Charles mentioned, during the peak of the lockdown, uh, frequency decline was higher, but we uh, we see in the last two weeks that driving have uh, picked up, and we expect this to continue as governments are starting to remove uh, uh, restrictions and uh, starting to share high level high uh, level plans to reopen uh, economies. Thank you very much, Isabel. How about you, Patrick? Uh, not much to add uh, from a claims uh, perspective. Uh, there's no real lag between the, um, the amounts of driving that we measure from UBI and the intake that we see in the claims operation. So I would say that uh, the increase in driving from the past two weeks or, uh, you know, the, the 50% of our souls that we've seen for a few weeks at the peak uh, mirrors very much the intake we've seen in claims. So there's no real lag between the two. Okay, yeah, great. thanks, Patrick. And I think, Jeff, you know, we have been working hard to push our telematics program in the past three years. Uh, you know, it, it is close to 40% of new business. This gives us tremendous insight and in driving, but it also means that embedded in the product and embedded in a portion of the portfolio, the amount of driving that people do is actually uh, in part reflected with uh, how we price in particular uh, with telematic. And I would add that on top of the relief measures that, uh, that have taken place. Thanks, Jeff. Okay, great, thank you. Your next question is from Michael Phillips of Morgan Stanley. Please go ahead, your line is open. Yeah, hey, thanks. Uh, good uh, morning, everybody. Um, I, I think Louis mentioned uh, part of the 83 for COVID, um, I think you said, Louis, um, specific endorsements for BI um, and if I heard you correctly, I hope that's what you said. Um, and so I guess, does that mean that excluding those ex uh, specific endorsements that you probably wouldn't have had any exposure to, to business interruption? Um, and I guess, if so, does that mean then that, uh, I guess I'm trying to get you to maybe quantify 
um, any kind of exclusions you might have in your policies. There's a lot of talk about that down here in the U.S. Um, about you know, specific endorsements and versus exclusions for viruses. Um, and so I just don't know the percent of maybe your policies that have these exclusions and how that might differ for your Canadian business versus the one beacon business. Yeah, so thanks, Mike. Um, key question indeed. I would say 99.5% of our policies uh, would not provide coverage uh, for pandemic. Um, and I'll let uh, Darren maybe give a bit of perspective on the 83 million per se, which is not really driven by business interruption. It is one of the elements that make up the 83 million. And maybe, uh, Darren, you want to provide a perspective on on uh, business interruption, uh, in particular uh, in the U.S. portfolio, uh, to Mike's question. Sure, absolutely. Thanks, Charles. Uh, so, Mike, as, as we mentioned, I mean, consistent with our past uh, practices of reserving major events quickly, and clearly this is a, a rather major event, I mean, we took a very prudent approach uh, to recognizing at the end of Q1 the ultimate view of our uh, direct COVID losses. As you mentioned, obviously, our best estimate at this point is $83 million. Um, should point out, though, that this has really not been, that estimate has not been driven by claims activity to date. Uh, we've only seen less than $10 million of incurred activity. Uh, but we undertook a, a very extensive bottom-up, file-by-file uh, exercise to get a really good understanding of where exposure is, is understood to exist. So when we look at the $83 million, uh, $50 million relates to Canada, uh, $33 million relates to the U.S., uh, and I'll get into the to the BI uh, component here in, in a moment. If we look at some of the key categories of our COVID-19 exposure, and there's really, I would say, four major components. Um, first of all, liability exposure. We, we understand, we know that certain businesses in the commercial space have been impacted by COVID-19. Now, and remember that uh, for liability for CGL, negligence has to be proven. Uh, so therefore, uh, duty to defend um, is clearly an exposure that exists for us. Both in the US and in Canada, uh, entertainment line of business has some exposure, mostly related to production shutdowns, but also event cancellations. And then in the U.S., uh, tuition reimbursement, we could see some exposure there as well. And then lastly, as, as you referenced, we do have some specialized programs where pandemic-related business interruption coverage uh, is extended, but as, as Charles indicated, that's less than half a point um, in our portfolio. If I look at our, our U.S. portfolio, and obviously business interruption comes with the property uh, form, property coverage. And when we look at our various different lines of business in the US, uh, roughly 15% of our US portfolio actually has property forms, um, of which um, a good two thirds of that is actually excess property. So when we back out the excess property, we're really looking at less than 5% of our portfolio has property, which ultimately then has an extension of business interruption. If I compare that 
to Canada, which is obviously more Main Street, um, roughly 40% of the portfolio uh, has property coverage with a corresponding business interruption coverage as well. So when we look at our, our coverage forms, uh, the coverage that we have in the U.S. is very consistent with industry practice and industry language, which is surrounding the requirement of physical damage uh, by an insured peril to trigger business interruption, uh, together with a virus uh, exclusion, which was introduced uh, well over a decade ago, and as I say, consistent um, with, with U.S. practices. On the Canadian side, uh, our, our coverage, we're very, very comfortable with our language. It's very clear, uh, and, the, and the courts really have determined that loss of use absent physical damage uh, does not trigger business interruption coverage. I mean, beyond this first line of defense, we have exclusions in our policy language that make it very clear that the inability to use or access a property even in times such like this, in a lockdown, uh, does not uh, qualify for coverage. That is very unique, uh, similar, I should say, uh, to our U.S. Uh, position as well. So we're very, very comfortable with where we sit from our coverage position today. It's well understood by governments, by brokers, by customers, that in the vast majority of cases, which as we indicated, 99.5% of our policies uh, business business interruption coverage would not be triggered um, by by the pandemic. One last point that I would make, though, Mike, is that again, business interruption is a covered peril under our property cat reinsurance treaty. So, assuming we do end up um, more than our retention on multiple claims, and and we're not of that view uh, at this time today, uh, we believe that there's a reasonable scenario that we we would present this. Um, as, as a reinsured event. So a lot of, lot of information there, but that's sort of a breakdown in terms of where we sit from a coverage position, both in Canada and in the US. We think the position is quite solid, and I think Darren's point is that there are many layers uh, of protection uh, here, and where specific coverage was provided, we've largely reserved it for uh, in Q1 already, which would be on less than 0.5% of our portfolio. Okay, no, great, thank you guys. That's a uh, great detail, I appreciate it. That, that's the only question I had for now, thank you. Thank you. Your next question is from Manny Grauman of Cormark Securities. Please go ahead, your line is open. Hi, good morning. Just wondering if there's any political pressure to increase uh, premium support or, or make it broader to all policyholders uh, on the personal auto side of the business and then just more broadly if you could just talk about the regulatory landscape uh, because of COVID coming out of COVID and how you see that, is there any changes you see on the horizon because of this pandemic? So um, we're, um, I'm talking with regulators and uh, elected officials on a uh, weekly or biweekly basis across the board to share with them, you know, what we're seeing in the field. I think that um, there's a lot of relief that is provided by the industry uh, across uh, North America and certainly in purse lines, which I'm more familiar with across Canada, 
Uh, and I think that uh, regulators in general recognize that this is going in the right direction. I think that uh, it is early in the process and people want to make sure that uh, Canadians have access to this relief uh, in personal automobile in particular uh, and in personal property. Um, political pressure, I think, is a strong word here, but I think uh, we're, we all uh, share the view that relief needs to be provided. There's a lot of traction, and I think the regulators want to make sure, in my mind, that indeed uh, Canadians take advantage uh, of, these, of these measures. That's the first point, uh, but very cooperative relationships at this stage. And the second point uh, on the regulatory landscape, uh, no major changes at this stage. Uh, I would say that uh, where reforms were in the pipeline, because the key issues in automobile insurance uh, today, in my mind, if you take Ontario, if you take Alberta, if you take the Maritimes to a certain extent, is rooted in the fact that the product that is designed by the governments have been a big source of inflation in the, net, in the last few years. As you know, I mean, we've talked about that a fair bit. There are uh, you know, proposals on the table across most jurisdictions. And, uh, you know, it is likely that uh, we will see some change in the coming year or two. And in my mind, important to put in place to further uh, provide, uh, you know, access to the product at a reasonable price. Uh, there's no change at this stage. Some jurisdictions are saying, no, we're going ahead with the reforms. Um, other jurisdictions are, are focused on other things at the moment, and it's completely understandable, but no major change from a regulatory point of view as far as, uh, as, far as I can tell. I don't know, Isabel, um, if you have a, a different perspective here or, um, or other members of the team. No, I would say, Charles, uh, I agree with your comment. Uh, I would add that all the regulators were open for discussion on relief measures as soon as the crisis started, and that's true for all the jurisdictions in uh, Canada. So uh, we're really uh, in regular contact uh, with them to ensure that they understand our relief effort and uh, we keep them uh, advised of our actions on, in that uh, regard. Yeah, no, exactly. There's been, you know, in the U.S., a number of uh, states have issued uh, moratorium on uh, primarily underwriting uh, measures and so on. And, and uh, quite frankly, many of those uh, measures make, uh, make sense. I don't know, Darren, if you have a, a different uh, perspective or any color you want to add there, but that is COVID-driven and um, nothing in there is not things that we're doing already. No, I would agree, Charles. I think we've seen an, a number of uh, moratoriums in, in different states in the U.S., uh, very much consistent with uh, processes and practices that we had in place uh, in the U.S. I think the only other thing I would add from a U.S. standpoint is this notion of uh, prospective pandemic uh, coverage. There's further discussions around that at the federal level uh, to look to create uh, federally funded programs uh, to provide prospective pandemic coverage, um, similar to other programs that have been established in the past. Obviously, um, industry bodies are very much um, in communication with the federal government working through that. So 
So that's probably just another nuance that I would add from a U.S. standpoint. Thank you, Darren. Just, just, just in terms of a follow-up on that, I guess the, the question is, to what extent do you see the risk of, um, you know, you're, you're clear that the market should continue to harden after maybe a brief pause, but could you be in some situation where, because of a deep recession, because of political will, it's just not, there's the the political side of it will not allow for that on on the, on the personal audit side in particular. Well, I think that you're saying on the personal auto side in particular. I think the answer, in my mind, is the reforms I've just talked about. I think that uh, the industry, as suggested over the past few years, across the land, very specific, concrete measures that would bring relief in the system. And I think the answer now and the answer coming out of this is to put those reform measures in place as the best possible way to reflect um, you know, the environment in which we operate. So uh, I think the, the better answer here in my mind is, um, is reforms. And keep in mind, automobile insurance is regulated today. And, uh, you know, the pricing process in automobile insurance is uh, a back and forth. And I think that, um, that that will keep happening in the coming period. I think if, if, uh, if people push in ways that become uh, uneconomical to write automobile insurance, you'll see a severe capacity shortage in the marketplace. And I think nobody wins uh, in that environment. And keep in mind, automobile insurance coming in this crisis, um, you know, maybe not as much for impact, but for the industry in aggregate, the industry was operating automobile insurance with a combined ratio above 100%. In 2019, the industry's combined ratio, uh, you know, was probably in the 103, 104% range in automobile insurance. And so, I think, uh, you know, applying pressure in ways that would create a deeper issue there for the industry, in my mind, is a recipe for a big capacity shortage, and I don't think you want that in this environment. That's why we encourage cooperation on, on relief, and we encourage people to think about the reforms uh, coming out of this. Thank you. Your next question is from John Aiken of Barclays. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Good morning, Charles. In terms of the current environment, I, I know that there's a little bit of um, unwillingness to try to look out in terms of what the, uh, the environment means. But, you know, does this change your outlook for M&A in terms of um, whether or not there's going to be greater dislocation from the, uh, from the rest of the participants in the industry? Yeah, I think that, John, you know, uh, you know us well, we, we, we've had this uh, thesis of consolidation for many years. We have uh, said, you know, that we felt that in the midterm, we'd see a good 15 to 20 points of consolidation. And I think this environment is a meaningful source of dislocation in my mind, not only here, but abroad and globally. Uh, and I think that this only exacerbates or uh, solidify our thesis when it comes to consolidation. 
And I think that uh, Louis, uh, Ken, and team have done a fantastic job with the investment guys and our capital management guys to make sure that, A, we can absorb a real bad uh, uh, crisis, but also, you know, be able to be on the offensive at the same time. And, and that's really how I feel we're positioned now. And I think the, the thesis we've laid out a number of years ago is certainly stronger today than it was uh, three months ago. Understood. And Charles, as we wait for that dislocation, are there any are there any particular areas where you're deploying capital where you think you can gain market share organically in the meantime? Yeah. So I, I think that. Uh, and, and by the way, John, I just want to point out that as we wait for consolidation, uh, we closed our last transaction. Uh, you know, five months ago, and so we're. <laughs> As we wait, uh, we're deeply in integration process at this stage, and, and I want to point out this integration is going uh, quite well. Uh, actually, we're quite pleased with where we are, uh, even though the environment has changed. Um, you know, capital priorities, John, I mean, clearly, we've laid out the roadmap in the fall about the next decade of impact, and, and one of the things we said is priority number one is capital deployment to strengthen our position here in Canada. And that's true in manufacturing, and it's true in distribution. Priority number two, and it's becoming increasingly relevant, is to solidify our position as one of the leading and best specialty lines writer in North America. We're now hitting $3 billion of revenue. The underlying performance of that business is low 90s. And I feel really good that after all, all the heavy lifting that Mike Miller and team have done in the past three years, that we are very much in that zone and in an outperformance zone. And I think that uh, we're quite open and interested to deploy capital in the US, provided you know good options present themselves uh, to us. And, uh, and our view has not really changed from that point of view. Great, thanks Charles, I appreciate the color. All right. Your next question is from James Glowen of National Bank Financial. Please go ahead, your line is open. Yes, thanks, good morning. Um, first question is related to the bottom-up assessment uh, of direct losses where COVID could create some claims. Appreciate the color around that. Uh, one thought is how far did you look out in terms of developing that bottom-up assessment? Was this uh, related to uh, events and, and production shutdown for the next three months or is it something further out beyond 2020, for example? Well, the lens we've taken is, is one of saying, if we look at this crisis, the shutdown, the implications of the shutdown, which parts of our portfolio will be subjected to a, a direct loss as a result of uh, COVID-19 per se, not so much as a result of an economic slowdown, which is what we call indirect losses. And this is the lens that we have used to uh, come through our portfolio 
in Canada and in the U.S. to come up with this bottom-up exposure, as opposed to extrapolating claims reported to date, which is a big difference. And so I'll ask Darren to give uh, a bit of, um, of color uh, on that. Yeah, so, uh, James, when we look at the indirect effects, I mean, clearly we can see that these are possible throughout the recovery, but clearly from where we sit today, uh, much harder to predict. Now, while we've seen economic contraction before, um, our business has proven to be quite resilient uh, in past economic downturns. So when we look at potential contraction of the recovery and we look at it by line of business, I would say in personal lines, uh, first of all, we may see some limited severity pressure and that's mostly around social distancing requirements, uh, virus prevention measures in the claims fulfillment process, but we don't see this as being material, but it's, but it's one that we continue to watch. The area that will obviously be very vigilant is in commercial lines, uh, both in the US and, and in Canada. So let me give you uh, a few examples here. If we can think about property, uh, potentially we'll see an increase in vacant properties. And with that comes the potential for moral hazard. When you look at CGL and liability, um, we potentially see an increase in the litigious environment in areas such as employment practices liability and financial services surrounding market volatility, just as a couple of examples. And then I would, I would uh, bring another example around contact, uh, contract surety, um, which is clearly linked to the health of the construction industry. Um, while we do expect to see heavy government stimulus and infrastructure spending in construction, um, contract surety can be impacted by an economic slowdown. So I think at this point, we're simply highlighting the risk of potential indirect losses at this time. And to be clear, we have not seen anything to date, um, but clearly we're, we remain very, very vigilant, in particular in commercial lines. Um, and obviously, as the, the recovery progresses, we'll continue to, to keep you up to date on, on what we see. But, but as I said, at this point in time, we don't see anything, but the risk is there. Louis, any color you want to provide? Uh, well, just a bit on the um, uh, the entertainment and the event cancellation, um, trying to figure out how far ahead we're, we're estimating here. Uh, and in fact, the notion of a bottom-up is actually having reviewed every single insured policy that we have in our book. And uh, some of them have, have canceled their, their events. They're fully provided for if they have not rescheduled, uh, because if they do reschedule, the, um, the liability goes away. Um, but it was a, a file by file uh, work that was done for every single uh, insured that we have in entertainment. Where um, events have not yet been canceled because they're further out in the future, we took an estimate of how much payouts we could have, applied a probability of cancellation there. Um, but it was not based on time, it was more based on uh, what are the insured or the policies that we have in place 
and then the likelihood of cancellation because they're extended in the future. But it was really um, policy by policy from the event cancellation uh, coverage. So I think what you want to take out of this in my mind is we looked at the portfolio and we said the direct impact that we expect here, let's try to account for that now as much as we can. We're flagging that in a slow, low economic environment, even though our business is very resilient, we need to keep an eye on indirect losses. It would be really hard to, you know, um, I mean, you can't reserve for that. You just need to keep an eye on it as the situation evolves. And we wanted to be very transparent with you guys that these are the sort of things we'll keep an eye on as, as this uh, crisis evolves. On the direct losses, per se, we put our best foot forward, tried to be as rigorous as possible. You should expect fine-tuning uh, on that point, you know, in Q2 and probably in Q3. But at this stage, uh, we put our best foot forward and tried to be as rigorous as we could in, in doing that. And we all and you all recognize that, you know, this is a new environment in which most people are operating and that'll come with bumps uh, here and there, but we try to go as fast as we can to, to develop a perspective on it and reserve accordingly. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Your next question is from Brian Meredith of UBS. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Yeah, thank you. Um, Charles, I just want to clarify. In Canada, I guess your policies um, for business interruption does not have a virus exclusion. I guess that's that's what I think I heard. And, and if so, I, I guess my question is, is the protection purely based upon having a physical kind of damage to the building? Because uh, I know there's a lot of discussion down here in the U.S. that that's a potential risk area here that courts could potentially, you know, decide that the virus is, is in fact a physical damage to a building. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. The the um, uh, primary defense is indeed uh, a direct physical loss, and as we've mentioned, the uh, common law is very strong uh, in Canada on that front. Then the product has a second layer of exclusions, not specifically focused on the virus per se, but focused on the fact that if you can't use your your property, if you don't have access to your property pretty much whatever the reason, uh, there's, no, uh, there's no coverage for BI interruption as a second layer of defense. Then you have uh, other elements of exclusion as well, which I won't get into in the product. And so while we don't think the odds, we think that it's extremely remote that we need to invoke the second and third layer of defense if we had to in an extreme scenario there are other solid arguments to, to defend that position uh, as well. Great. That's very, very helpful. And then I'm, I'm just curious. Um, you, I know, you, 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 Darren, you talked a little bit about the surety potential indirect exposure here of an economic downturn. Um, it, do you have any kind of numbers or anything you can give us with respect to the guaranteed book and, and how that performed during the financial crisis, the surety business? Yeah, Darren, do you want to take this one? Yeah, sure. Hi, Brian. When we look at our surety Thanks. business in North America, uh, roughly half a billion dollars uh, is the portfolio. Uh, in Canada, U.S., 
obviously uh, the contract uh, surety piece is the the portion of the portfolio mm -hmm. that is the most sensitive, as you as you well know, and that's just under three hundred million dollars. Um, that particular portfolio, um, that portfolio today is in a very strong position, um, and it was very well positioned going into um, the crisis. So we could see some pressure both in the near term and over the period of economic contraction, um, both in terms of costs, but also in terms of the economic slowdown. Now, the flip side, obviously, we, we do expect to see strong government stimulus and infrastructure to support the, the, the construction industry. But your, your reference back to 08, 09 is, is a really good one. And if we look back over that period of time, where we would say that there was less government support um, at the time provided to the construction industry. And if we look at um, industry results during that time, um, combined ratios sort of pushed into the mid-90s. Um, so again, strong underlying performance. Yes, felt some pressure in 08, 09, um, but I would say still within manageable levels. Obviously, in addition to that, we do have reinsurance protection in place on the surety book um, to provide protection on larger losses. That's another layer of protection that we have. So I think when I look in the, the longer term horizon, surety portfolio is shown to be very resilient in economic cycles. Um, and if things get worse, we have reinsurance protection in place. So from where we sit today, uh, we don't see this as a key issue for IFC during this crisis. But certainly Thanks, something, Brian, something we're, we're uh, watching, uh, of course, with, uh, with great intensity. And we'll give you guys an update that upcoming quarters as the economy changes. But, you know, the thing to keep in mind with construction is that before the crisis, this sector was red hot. Uh, and so it was a lot of, lot of demand, and we think government uh, response will compensate uh, to a certain extent uh, the pressure that might come from the economic slowdown, but clearly an area to keep an eye on. Great. Thank you. Your next question is from Tom McKinnon of BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Yeah, thanks. Uh, first, a question on, uh, on on tax, probably for Louis, and then a question on premium volumes, maybe for Charles. Um, with respect to tax, the operating tax rate was 22.6, and I think it included an expense of $9 million or about three points uh, related to some U.S. tax legislative changes. Uh, is that uh, um, considered to be a one-time one timer, so if we take that out, we would have had an operating tax rate of 19.6. Uh, is that correct? And uh, is that, uh, um, what should we be thinking about operating taxes going forward given this? And then, the, then we'll get into the premium bond question. So uh, on the tax front, you're right, it's a, for us it's a, it's a one time event, so it's a retroactive change uh, to some legislation where the, the U.S. government has, has made their views more precise and we had to uh, adjust for that. Uh, it's roughly $9 million overall. It was uh, affecting uh, operating and non-operating uh, tax rates. Uh, roughly three points, uh, as you said, in the um, 
the operating tax. I would say here our expectation, generally speaking, is to be somewhere between 20 and 22 on the tax rate. Uh, it fluctuates on a quarterly basis, as you know, depending on the nature of the results, how they're combined. But um, our view here, that doesn't change it. This is a one-time item, and we're, we would adjust for it and continue estimating between 20 and 22. Okay, that's great. And then second, with respect to premium volumes, uh, uh, there's 130 million, I think, of premium relief measures kind of in place, uh, and they're going to expire at the end of June. So maybe the first question on that has, what's your thinking behind the 200 million or more, uh, and how much longer, you know, how did you come to that, and how, and, uh, and how much longer do you have that extending to? Um, and then in addition, as a follow-up on that, in addition to um, the premium relief measures, what other headwinds do you see that would impact premium volumes going forward? Yeah, Tom, this is a... Uh this is a, a, a question that uh, is multifaceted. So we have provided over 130 million so far, um, you know, to close to 400,000 uh, people uh, and businesses. We, when we say June 30th, what we're saying is that, you know, given where we are, given our assessment of the situation, we will grant relief uh, until June 30th, and then we'll reassess depending on where the world is. And that relief will impact not the performance until June 30th, it, it will impact probably Q2 and Q3, quite frankly, because if you come to us and you need help uh, in late May or early June, we'll give you help and, and provide probably give you three months worth of, uh, of help uh, as we do that. So. Um, the, the the 200 million that's been uh, put out there, you know, is an assessment uh, today of how much premium relief uh, will be provided, and on top of that, there's a bit of financing uh, relief uh, as well, and we think that the bulk of that will impact the direct written premium in Q2 and then in Q3 to a certain extent, and will be uh, earned shortly thereafter. Our program is risk-based. Uh, it's flexible. You know, it, it depends on how many customers come to us. And so far, it's been very, very successful. I think we've put our best foot forward. And I think as the weeks advance, Tom, we'll look at the environment, we'll look at people's behavior, and we'll decide if uh, we take a different stance in the marketplace, but we're not we're not there uh, at this stage. We're clearly leading on this relief uh, process and uh, we'll reassess in the coming weeks. But, you know, I would say you ought to think about that in terms of impacting Q2 and Q3 uh, direct written premium. And uh, I would say three quarters of which you should think about in personal lines and a quarter of which in, in commercial lines. That's the first point I would make. Uh, headwinds. From a top-line point of view, uh, I would say, you know, you ought to think about a couple of things beyond relief. One is the impact that the slowing economy will have on the units. And I would say that the impact that it will have on the units or the number of customers 
is expected to be felt to a greater extent in commercial lines. So, um, so on one hand, you've got uh, more relief in relative terms in personal lines. On the other hand, I think you have more pressure from a unit growth point of view in commercial lines. Then the, the third thing that you ought to anticipate um, in, in primarily in commercial lines, I would say is the pressure that comes from how much you insure yourself, meaning the, the amount of insurance, which is driven by your business activity, which is driven by um, the size of your fleet and things of that nature. And I think that this will play out in the coming year. We're not sure exactly what that will be, but we know it is a pressure point. So when I came out in, in April and I said, um, we expect that the impact on the top line will be between low single digit to low double digit, this really anticipated those three components. We're sitting here today, and in a, in a moderate scenario, you know, which we think is the scenario we're in, we think that the hit to the top line will likely be mid-single digit, maybe a bit above mid-single digit, but at, at that point in the range. And if I can help you think through that, our perspective is that it's likely to be mid-single digit across personal lines and commercial lines. In personal lines, it'll be more driven by relief, the hit, that is. In commercial lines, it's likely to be more driven by units. This is an informed judgment. We've done a fair bit of modeling under a number of scenarios, but that would be the best way for me to help you think through what that means in practice from a top-line point of view. Great. That's very helpful. Thank you. Okay. The next question is from Paul Holden of CIBC. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Hi, thank you. Good afternoon. Um, so the question I was actually going to ask was sort of on the continuity of your Canadian PNC business, but Charles, I think you pretty much just answered it. Maybe you can give us a little bit more specifics in terms of, as we think about that premium relief, how much is being provided between personal and commercial, um, and then sort of any details you can provide on premium collection from, uh, from commercial uh, customers. Yeah, so it's about three quarters, first lines, one quarter, commercial line. Uh, and um, in, in terms of uh, collections, I guess, is the point that, uh, that you're making. Uh, we have provided in, um, in commercial lines in terms of financing relief uh, in commercial lines. Um, you know what, I don't have that number uh, in front of me uh, right now, and maybe it's something we can come back to. I, I don't have uh, a, a specific perspective on commercial re on uh, re financing relief in commercial lines. Okay. But those are the kinds of those are the kind of data you, you put together to come up with your mid single digit uh, impact on on commercial units. That conclusion. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Maybe maybe Paul, it's, it's Darren here. I can just add a little bit around sort of the, some of the forms of relief that we are providing in commercial lines. So, and there's really a few three different elements there. When we look at 
mid-term, so middle of term, we're enabling customers to come back to us and say, hey, my revenues are down, my payrolls are down, um, can I adjust my coverage accordingly? Can I adjust my premium base accordingly? Uh, so we're making those those changes midterm. Similarly, on the auto side, with fleets, parking vehicles that, that aren't in use, um, traditional things that we would tend to do more at the end of the term, but we're, we're making adjustments at the middle of the term. We are tempering um, rate increases in commercial lines, and in fact, we've identified about a third of our portfolio that are small to medium businesses that are most impacted by the current crisis. And uh, on, on renewals for those customers, we're going six months as is. In other words, um, no change in terms, conditions, pricing. Um, so that's another form of relief that we're providing on the commercial line standpoint, and that will all feed into some of that top line pressure that, that Charles was referring to. And, and, and any sense of how long that commercial line's top line pressure might last for? That seems like it could be something with uh, a little bit more legs to it than obviously just a few quarters, but maybe something that lasts in the 2021 as well. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's very much dependent on your perspective of how long we'll be <clears throat> in a meaningful economic contraction and when the recovery uh, will take hold. So uh, it, it depends on the scenario, quite frankly. In the moderate scenario, I think, um, you know, the pressure left in 2021 will still be pressure in a moderate scenario, though we wouldn't qualify it as, uh, as significant from a top line point of view in commercial lines at this stage. Got it, those are the questions I had, thank you. Thanks, Paul. And Ken, I think, um, you know, we have an AGM uh, to go and do a speech to, so we'll let you uh, manage the queue here, but I want to make sure I'm not late to the AGM. Your next question comes from Mario Madonka of TD Securities. Please go ahead. Your line is open. I'll be quick, Charles. The um, lo thinking longer term here, do you see any meaningful impact on um, auto miles driven? And, and now that people have become really accustomed to not working in, in, a, in the more formal settings, uh, do you see any long-term implications and how's the company positioned for that? So Mario, that's a big one, right? Uh, because it talks about behaviors uh, of people. And um, we've, done a bit of, uh, we've done a bit of work on what the permanent impact of COVID could be. And we're in the process of thinking through, you know, midterm, talking three years here, uh, how our strategic positioning should or, or, or could change. And I think that uh, on one hand, the uh, opportunity to work from home is something that uh, obviously uh, will have greater importance uh, in, in, in the future. The flip side of this, uh, Mario, is, is the fact that you could argue that the usage of public transportation uh, might come down uh, at the same time. And so, you know, there's a, say, a return to normalcy effect, which might last within a year. And I think wouldn't want to opine on that at this stage, though uh, was surprised to see the driving pick up so quickly. So 
towards the end of the period. But if I think about it mid to longer term, um, you know, I, I think that uh, it is a matter of uh, looking at how people will move uh, in relationship with uh, coming to work for those who come to work uh, versus uh, how many more people will work from home. I think in aggregate, it's probably fair to assume that there'll be a fair bit less uh, driving uh, in the long run. However, um, again, I think if people uh, don't feel the pressure to uh, live close to the city, and if people don't use the public transportation as much, I think that's an offset here. And I think that uh, with UBI, with um, some of the work that we've done on the data front, with our broad distribution platform, with the fact that we're leading in commercial automobile as well, uh, and on the fleet side of things, we feel, uh, Mario, that from a transportation point of view, uh, we have a fair bit of optionality. And we have a fair bit of optionality because a few years back, we started to have this discussion about where the world uh, was going and, and in relationship with transportation. And clearly, this is a new vector, but we have optionality. Should miles-driven compress on a permanent fashion, clearly the growth profile of transportation changes, but this is where uh, the move we've made a few years back to really bolster our presence in commercial and in specialty lines uh, and the growth that might come from there, in my mind, is a clear long-term macro offset to anything that can happen on the transportation side of things. Thank you. Thanks, Mario. We have completed the allotted time for questions. I will now turn the call over to Ken Anderson for closing remarks. Thank you, and thanks everyone for joining us today. Following the call, the telephone replay will be available for one week, and the webcast will be archived on our website for one year. A transcript will also be available on our website in the financial reports and filings archive. Also, we will be hosting our first virtual annual and special meeting of shareholders shortly after this call at 12.30 p.m. today, and you can join that meeting via live webcast from our website. Lastly, our second quarter 2020 results are scheduled to be released after the market close on Tuesday, July 28th. Thank you again, and this concludes the call for today. This concludes today's conference call. Thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.